And so what we're doing this morning is we're going to um, probably do a little bit of self-reflection in the process because we're going to see Peter confronted by his own lack of courage, by his inability to keep his own promises. And that's always a, a threatening or intimidating thing for any of us when we experience that, isn't it? Uh, this morning, I'm calling this talk Ashamed because that's the starting place for Peter. And often it's the starting place for us when we begin our Christian journey. And so we're wanting to ensure that we start here, but we don't finish here. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to take us back to um, the, the upper room, to a time when Jesus is preparing his disciples for this event that we're going to look at today. So there's a crossover here of what Jesus predicts will happen and then the event itself. And we're going to have a look at both this morning. So let's start with Luke's Gospel, chapter 22. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. So, so obviously here in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, Jesus is being arrested. But what I wanted to pick up on was that final sentence that Jesus uses as a marker to describe the events that are going to happen over the next couple of days. He says, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. Okay, so what we're going to see in the next couple of days is recorded by uh, the gospel writers, are the events that Jesus said are dark, and this is what darkness looks like. This is when lies, deception, uh, murder, all come to be a part of the story of Jesus' life. But Jesus has rightfully said, this is where darkness reigns. So we need to look at the scriptures through this lens. It's a descriptor to us of what darkness can look like. But the scary thing for us is that even as we read these stories and we see Peter's interactions with Jesus here, um, I know for myself, I see myself there. And therefore I recognize my own darkness and my own capacity for darkness in and through Peter's life. So we need to set the stage here a little bit to remind us of what Jesus had predicted Peter would do, what Jesus predicted Peter would do when he was put under pressure, okay? Because we often think of ourselves, don't we, as being bolder than we actually are. We all think that we're a little bit wiser, a little bit bolder, a little bit better looking, maybe. Um, and therefore we fail. And when we fail, that disappoints us. So let's enter into that time when Peter thought he was going to do better than he actually did. All right, let's go back to the upper room and we find Jesus having this unusual conversation with Peter. It says, Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another as I've loved you so that you must love one another. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Okay, so here's a very strange statement. A conversation we can understand. Peter pledges that he will, he will die for Jesus and, and Jesus pushes back and says, no, it's not going to happen. In fact, you're going to disown me. 
and you're going to disown me three times before the rooster crows. And we're like, what? What's a rooster got to do with this thing? And it's like a lot of words that Jesus actually uses and, 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 and he's sort of moving in this prophetic realm here where he's just setting up a situation so that when the scenario outworks itself, people go, oh, okay, you knew this was going to happen. Yeah? When the rooster crows. So I'm going to read to you this event when Peter disowns Jesus. And um, we're going to have the music team come out because they're going to do an item at the end of this piece of scripture, which I think captures the story well. Then seizing him, that's Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance, and when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. And about an hour later, another asserted, certainly this man was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly.
Thank you, Mana. Thank you, team. Let's give him a hand. For me, that song captured, I think, um, that moment for Peter when he went outside and wept bitterly. You know, there he would be just feeling condemned. I thought I heard you laughing at me, you know. All these feelings that enclose around you when you feel that like you've failed, sitting outside there, have a sense that you're losing your religion. Can we just raise the house lights a little bit? Thanks. And so here we are looking at this event in Peter's life, which is uh, transformational, isn't it? When you have these events that you just feel that you've disappointed everybody, uh, they are moments when you walk away thinking, boy, I've really blown it. And how can I make a way back? How can I be restored? How can I be renewed? Is there hope for me? And so Peter is in that moment. And so what we're seeing is a guy who's letting himself down. And we've all been there, haven't we? We've all let ourselves down. You know, being, being a human being is a challenge, to say the least, isn't it? Being a human being is a challenge. You know, when we've got a dog at home and, um, you know, dogs do dumb things and we just look at it and go, well, that's, that's a dog. dog. Dogs do dumb things. You know, but being a human, we're expected to do better. And these are one of the times, like Peter's describing to us here, where he's saying, I'm the guy. I'm the guy you can rely on, Jesus. I'm the guy. I'm, I'm going to lay my life down for you. And there he is but a few hours later, and he can't even admit that he knows Jesus. You know, the gulf between I will die for you and I'm not even going to let you know that I know the guy is enormous, isn't it? And in that gulf, there is the, the, the depth or the length of that dissonance or that distance between what it is Peter thinks he's capable of and what he's actually doing. And we all suffer that, don't we, to some degree? That gulf, that distance, and the disappointment that is part of it. And so when we look at Peter, we see ourselves through his eyes. And I think that's the way the scriptures are created to do, to see ourselves and be able to reflect upon, learn about what it is that we can do as human beings to overcome this gulf of distance. Maybe the simple truth is we can't. If we can't, we've now got a problem. But the problem is being taken care of, and we're going to have to learn how to work that through in our lives. So let's, let's go back and capture some of the things that Peter's experienced, because there's some real keys here to understanding this distance of loss that we have in our own lives. It's called shame. Shame captures so many things, doesn't it, as a descriptor of what we experience when we feel we've let ourselves down or others. Let's be reminded, Peter uh, gets out of the boat. We looked at this a few weeks ago, Graham spoke about it. Peter gets out of the boat. He's doing really well, walking on the water. Then he looks to the waves and he gets fearful and uh, he starts to sink. Uh, and, and yet Jesus turns to him and says, oh, you have little faith, why did you doubt? Now, what happens in here is really, really important for us to understand. When we read the words of Jesus, what we do is we read into his words disappointment or anger or frustration because what we often do when we look at an authority figure like Jesus is, we project upon Jesus our own experience of authority figures speaking to us. And if they speak with frustration, they speak with anger, they speak with disappointment, then what we do is we project that onto Jesus as he talks to Peter. 
So if I was to ask you, give me an understanding, your understanding of the tone with which Jesus addressed Peter when he was sinking, they would be so different. Some of them would be angry. Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Or frustration. Oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? Can you see how easy it is for us to project upon Jesus' words our own experience of the authority figures in our lives? Um, and we also go to this next significant event in Peter's life where he's just told uh, Jesus what he wanted to hear. He said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, you didn't work that out for yourself. Heaven revealed that to you. And Peter will be like, whoa. High fives with all the boys, you know. Man, I'm in the money. I am doing revelation uh, by God, from God, you know, like just count me into the prophets. And then Jesus starts to tell them how he is going to suffer at the hands of the leadership and he's going to be crucified. And Peter takes Jesus aside and he says to him, that's not going to happen to you. And what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the plans of man in mind, but the plans, you don't have the plans of God in mind, but the plans of man. So immediately he's rebuked. And so what do we do with that? We project upon Jesus the authority figures in our lives. And when you've got something as significant as being told that you have, uh, you know, being told to get behind me, Satan, that's pretty heavy words. And so again, we're yelling that at Peter, aren't we? We don't have to yell though to get the meaning of this across. And I think if Jesus just simply said to Peter, look, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the plans of God. You have the plans of man. You know, did he want to publicly embarrass Peter? Did he want to strip him down and you know, make a, an example of him? I just don't think that's the Jesus that we know. But it's very easy for us to project upon Peter, sorry, upon Jesus, these, these feelings or these tones and these attitudes, ones that we've experienced in our own life. And so when we read in Scripture that the response from Jesus to Peter denying, even knowing Jesus, we read these words and it says that uh, Jesus looked straight at Peter. <laughs> so he denied him for the third time, the rooster crowed. Peter looked up to where the trial, this conversation was going, and he could see in the darkness Jesus looking directly at him. No words. But how many of you have had the look from someone before? <laughs> yeah, of course. We've all had the look. In fact, if you're a school teacher here, I suspect there's a class that you take or a paper that you do in how to give the look. <laughs> Would that be right? Teachers all have the look. Okay, that eyeball, that smoking x-ray that can just go straight through a student when they're misbehaving. The important thing that you've you got to hear me now on is this, is that I'm not talking about um, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I'm not talking about our consciences being reminded. I'm not talking about God bringing conviction upon people here. What I'm talking about here is shame. Shame is that gap that we, that feeling that we experience between the gap between what we wanted to do and what we did do, where we let ourselves down. Now, if forgiveness is operating freely in your life in the way that it should be as a Christian, um, 
shame should only be a temporary event in your life where you get to the point where you realize that God has forgiven you for that as well. Okay? You come to him, you ask forgiveness, and you are restored into relationship. That's the whole deal with Christianity. Okay? And if you've got ongoing shame in your life, then the work of the cross is not complete, and there's work to do. There's confession, and there's an understanding of what it is that God has truly done for you. We're not here to be shamed. Uh, in fact, let me just spell it out for you. Shame is not the goal of your Christian faith. It's not God's goal for you. He doesn't want to shame you into obedience, okay? He doesn't want to shame you into obedience. Now, getting back to our little dog again, uh, there are times when our dog has run out on the road, nearly been squashed, okay? Well, in that moment, that dog gets an earful and a whack around the butt, and it goes running off in shame. And now, whenever it goes near the road again, it looks up at me, immediately goes down like this, and it is ashamed, okay? Why? Because shame is the only thing that it's going to know that's going to allow it to actually be obedient. Now, we can focus on that as, as human beings, and there are a lot of cultures that work on shame as the end result and the motivating factor that allows you to be, behave, be behaving as an adult would want you to be. We leave you in shame. And I'll come back at this and address this in a little bit more in a moment, but... I want to um, just try to illustrate this a little bit more by talking to you about my letterbox. <laughs> you say, yeah, there's a letterbox. It's a standard letterbox. Uh, it's on the other side of the road from our driveway. But as you'll see here, it's crooked. Okay? My letterbox is often crooked. Why? Because people have an attraction to it with their cars. And I'll tell you how this happens. If you come off State Highway 2, you go up to the Quarry Park. But the natural camber of the road takes you to the right. What happens is there's some real bad signage, people miss it, and so they whip around, but they really want to go to the quarry, to the park. They slam on the brakes, and we're the first driveway that you turn into to turn around. So they turn into our driveway, back away, and then they hit our letterbox, okay? Now, without a lie, for the first 18 months we lived there, at least every two weeks I had to go and re-straighten our letterbox. So I thought, right, I've got to sort this out. So being wise, I moved the letterbox 10 metres down the road just so that it's out of range for the average backer, all right? But at the same time, I thought, I know what I can do because I am absolutely up to here with my letterbox getting hit all the time. So I know that my dad has this old concrete strainer post on his orchard that's doing nothing. So I thought, I'll get the concrete strainer post I'll you know, weld, weld this plastic letterbox onto the top. That'll be challenging. Uh, I'll paint it fluoro pink so that people can see it. And then if they hit it, I'll be able to know who hit it because they'll have a permanent marker there, all right? But the goal is to have this concrete post sort of, sort of concreted in. And then when people hit it, it's like, damage, cool. <laughs> and then I had a moment of conviction. And I went down the complete opposite track. So what I did was I moved the letterbox, and I dug a hole, and I dug it, and I just healed it in. It's a little bit wobbly, but it stands. It's okay. It's only for letters, you know. It doesn't have to have some sort of engineering standards. And now, firstly, people don't hit it because I haven't put it in their way. But when they do hit it, it doesn't cause any damage to them or to my letterbox, because that's the problem. If I'd made it out of a concrete post, 
I would have had to replace the post probably every couple of weeks, right? So now when I go out to get the mail, I see it's bent again. I get the mail, I push it up again, I heal the dirt back in, and I walk away. It's a letterbox of grace. <laughs> All right? It's a letterbox of grace. Because I realize that my goal is not to destroy people's bumpers just because they're poor drivers. All right? Uh, it's better for them and it's better for me to actually have a gracious letterbox in a place where it doesn't cause any harm. And the interesting fact is, we would have had our letterbox hit at least 40, uh, more than 40 times. 40 is a really conservative number. And we've never had one person come and knock on our door and say, hey, sorry, I just beat your letterbox over. Not one. Not one. Fascinating, isn't it? Fascinating look at, into insight, insight into the human nature. But human nature seems to um, want to dwell on shame. Now, let me give you an example of this. I'm going to go back to some stories in Jesus' life. Uh, here's a, a, a picture from a story of, from uh, John's Gospel where the Pharisees found a woman in the act of adultery and they dragged her to Jesus and they said, the law of Moses demands that we stone her to death. What do you say, Jesus? And so it was a real trap for Jesus uh, because you know, he has to affirm the law of Moses because that was God's way. But Jesus uh, cleverly and accurately said to those who were going to kill her by stoning her to death, said, those of you who have not sinned, you are the ones who can cast the first stone at her. Well, of course, the story records that. In fact, it says the older Pharisees left first. So, which is kind of cool, really, because it's like, yeah, we're wiser. We've, we think we're cornered. We think we're done for here. So they leave. And then Jesus turns to the woman after they've all gone, and he says to her, woman, where are those who condemn you? And she looks around. She says, there's no one, sir. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. But what captivates us the most is the pictures like this one, because that's the most poignant moment of the story, isn't it? This is when she's there in her shame. There's no doubt that she was uh, guilty of the crime that she was supposedly to be convicted for and punished for. No one was arguing that. We did argue, of course, we, we do ask where the, the man was because it's hard to commit adultery on your own, but let's not go there. Um, so here is this woman in her shame. And this is the most powerful part of the story. But in saying that, it's the resurrection side of it that should capture us. But all of us get caught in this moment because we too have experienced shame at some point in our lives. But we've got to remind ourselves that shame is not the goal. Shame is not the goal of Christian faith. Uh, let's have a look at another story, another picture. Um, this is Rembrandt's story or picture of the prodigal son. Prodigal son's story, and most of us will be aware of, is a son demands his inheritance from his father early. He goes off to a far land, far enough away so that no one knows what he's doing, but he squanders his money, loses all the money, ends up getting a job working at a pig farm, starving. He decides that being a servant for his father is a better vocation than what he's got now. So he heads back home, and here Rembrandt catches again that poignant moment of shame. And it's an amazing picture, isn't it? When you, you can just look at that and you just see so much depth in there. You know, he shaved his head because that's, the, that's what slaves do. That's what servants do. He, he's come back to present himself as a servant. 
because he knows that even his father's servants get fed. He wasn't even getting fed. You see his feet uh, don't have any shoes on. Uh, so he's in tatters. But what the story does from here is, is a resurrection experience. His father demands shoes for his feet, a, a robe for him, and he gives him a ring for his finger. And that was a, a signet ring, that's the term signature, signature ring, which is the equivalent to giving the family credit card back to him. Because he could go into town, he could buy stuff, and they'd put wax on the invoice and you'd push your signet ring into it. And that was saying, this household will affirm that this bill will be paid. So he's given shoes, he's given a robe, he's given the family credit card, and then they go and kill the fatted calf and they have a big feast. That's the resurrection part of the story. But we are captivated, just like Rembrandt was, with that poignant moment of when shame was at its fullest. Shame was at its most. And, and it's just really super important for us to understand that Christianity is not a shame-based religion. It's a forgiveness and resurrection-based relationship. Other faiths, other major faiths, will take you on a journey of shame and they will leave you there and shame will moderate your behavior because you don't want to shame your faith, you don't want to shame your country, you don't want to shame your family. And at that, on that basis there, people limp into the future, uh, being aware of the fact that they too are broken, but there is no other hope for them. There's really just a sense in which I have to behave, otherwise I bring shame on myself and shame on my family. And so when we, when we look at um, this event that's happening with Peter at the, uh, at the courtyard outside the high priest's home where this trial's about to take place, um, we, we find that Jesus doesn't say anything but it says that the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And this is one of these moments where you just go, what's happening here? What's in that look? You know, we know what different looks there are, aren't there? There's a high level of communication going on when we look at each other. There can be a look of, of shame, there can be a look of questioning, there can be a look of wonder, look of love, look of excitement, look of doubt. All of these things are expressed by us as human beings without any verbal thing going on, but it's all about that look. And so what we do is in this moment is we see ourselves as Peter and we say, Jesus is looking at me when I've just denied him three times. What's he actually saying to me with that look? So this is what Jesus was doing, you know, to Peter. Loser, 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 loser. And if that's been our experience where people have demeaned us at times when we've been unable to meet it, their expectations or our own expectations, we will project that upon Jesus. Or maybe it's not quite as tough as that. Maybe it's a little bit like... I'm not going to call you a loser, but hey, I prophesied you'd do this. I knew you were weak. You think you're the tough guy, lay your life down for me. I knew all along you wouldn't make it. I knew all along you couldn't do it. But maybe, maybe there was something else going on here. Because we're stuck with these words and these expressions of what that look would look like if our own experience of authority figures in our life have done this to us. But maybe it was a little bit more like this, whereas, hey, Peter, I'm looking at you because I know you better than you know yourself. 
know, I told you that you would deny me three times before the rooster crowed. You thought you'd do something different. You thought you'd lay your life down for me. But hey, look, I'm just looking at you now because I know you better than you know yourself. And that's okay, I can live with that. Or maybe, maybe, is something we haven't even really thought about because we're so conditioned to the look being negative. Maybe the look was this. I'm still watching over you, Peter. I know you've let me down. I know you've let yourself down. But I'm still watching over you. Maybe that look was the beginning of a setup for what we're going to look at next week, and that's at the, um, the Sea of Galilee, where in his shame, Peter goes back fishing. It's the only thing he can do. It's the only thing he's good at. And there Jesus finds him, and this beautiful story, this beautiful scene of restoration takes place. Jesus doesn't raise the fact that he let him down. He just moves on from there. But you see, we don't allow ourselves very often, do we, to think that Jesus might have had a look which says, I still got your back, Peter. I know you've blown it. You've got this distance between what you want to be and who you are, but I've still got you. You're still good enough for me, Peter. Those are enormous words of comfort because we are so programmed to think that authority figures are going to beat down on us, diminish us, demean us, shame us. And we do, we do Jesus a disservice by projecting upon him what we feel an authority figure would do for us or to us in those moments. And yet when we look through the whole of Scripture, we don't find Jesus beating up on people. The only people that he gave a hard time were those who thought that they knew um, better than him, i.e. the religious leaders of the day. But as far as his disciples were concerned, as far as those around him who were broken and needing love and help, he lifted them up every time, never a question about it. And so we've got to remind ourselves that shame is not the goal of your Christian faith. And where there is shame, that just is a, it's a, it's, it's a uh, representation to us or a reminder to us that your theology or your thinking about who God is is not complete. You see, the enemy, remember what I said earlier on? The enemy, this is his hour of darkness. This is the time in which he reigns. This is where in these days when Jesus is subject to everything that humanity wants to throw at him, this is where darkness reigns. And we've got to look at it from that angle and say, Peter is subject to what darkness can do to a human soul. And here he is ashamed. And he goes outside and he weeps bitterly. Disappointed. But we don't stay there. And if you've got things in your life that you are still deeply, bitterly ashamed about that cause you to go outside and cry in moments of reflection, then the work of the cross hasn't done its work completely in you yet. It's not an excuse to sin, but shame brings us to the cross. And there, we even sung about it this morning, about the cross taking our shame. That's the place where shame should end. That's the place where resurrection begins. 
That's the place where new life begins. And we get a chance to see ourselves again as God sees us, not as what we see us or the authority figures in our lives who have used shame upon us to bring us down. See us. So we're left with, with choices. And this is the whole understanding of the gospel. It's not just forgiveness, but it's a whole new life. It's a whole new way of seeing ourselves. People who are not only forgiven, but we don't carry the shame of the past with us. If we do, we're just going into the future, sort of like dragging all of that rubbish. Oh, goodness me. Look at the misery that I've made my life to be. Look at all the dumb things I've done. And I can barely take a step forward because I don't let myself, because I'm too ashamed of the past. Too ashamed of the look. So this morning, uh, by way of response to what I think God's saying to us this morning, is that I, I'd just like us to be able to take a moment to think about some stuff. Maybe the Holy Spirit's already impressing upon you some of the things that I've touched on today about shame. But I'd like to um, ask us to stand and pray, and I'll pray for us. So could we do that? Lord, we, um, we know that those images of Peter denying you in that firelight, in that courtyard, <clears throat> can become very familiar to us because of uh, the distance that we often experience between whom we want to be and whom we really are. In those moments when we just have all that exposure, when we're just there for everybody to see just how weak or um, selfish or angry, all these things, what we can be. And we truly walk outside and weep bitterly at that revelation of just how weak we are. Yet, Lord, that's just a part of the story. Like the prodigal, we can come back to you, Lord, stripped of our dignity, stripped of our, um, our self-worth, and you're the one who restores us and so, God, I just want to pray for those who have carried a burden of shame for maybe months or years or decades. I just want to pray, Lord, that people would see physically the opportunity in front of them to nail that to the cross because you became shame for us and you took upon yourself our shame. And that shame was nailed to the cross and put to death. And the only thing left that we can gain is resurrection life, new life, new hope, new opportunity, overcoming evil, overcoming death. And so we pray for these moments in our lives when we've felt deeply, deeply ashamed and we've carried those with us for so long. Lord, we just want to nail those to the cross. We don't need to weep on the inside anymore. We've been forgiven fully, completely, 100%. Our sins have been cast away from us as far as the east is from the west. It is finished, Jesus said. It is finished. So we want to take those words, Lord, and apply them to our lives. And Lord, for all those authority figures that have spoken into our lives and we project those tones, those harsh words, those angry moments and we take those and we project them upon Jesus' words, Lord, we ask for your forgiveness because we've misrepresented Jesus himself. 
We've turned Jesus into an angry human being. Lord, forgive us for that. Help us see Jesus as a whole new light. Help us respond to the, the work of your Holy Spirit as you come upon us and bring conviction, but not leave us in that place of shame. Help us discern those differences. And equally, Lord, we, we want to pray that we be people of grace, that we're not the concrete post that people run into, pouring judgment, shame, or consequence upon other people as a way of controlling them. So God, we thank you for Peter. We thank you for the insight we see through this, through this scripture this morning. And we just trust you, Lord, for a work, a deep work in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name.